just encourage you uh, to keep that part of the Bible open. That'll be really helpful. Um, it's great to have it in front of you as we work through our series. Uh, let me remind you that we are in the middle of a series that will go for the whole of this term, and it will take us through an outline of the whole of the Old Testament. If you haven't picked one of these up from the back, please feel free to do it. Um, this is our pictorial overview. Uh, we've got the Old Testament here. New Testament here, and basically what we're going to do is we're going to work through one each week, basically, uh, the, the images here on the Old Testament timelines. That's basically what we're doing, and we'd love you to have that resource for your private study and also to help um, make our way through, uh, through the series. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into uh, to Genesis. Father, thank you that you, the author of this passage that's before us, are present with us tonight by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for that, and we pray that you would awaken our hearts and open our spiritual eyes and unstop our spiritual ears that we might hear and respond well to your message. Father, challenge us where we need to be challenged, change us where we need to be changed, and make us more like Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Okay, well, you might be, um, you might be surprised to know that to get to Genesis chapter 3, after we did Genesis chapter 1 last week, we have to go through Genesis chapter, not 4, thank you, yes, no, Genesis chapter 2 is where we need to go. So I want to set the scene very briefly, like I'm, I'm never going to be able to preach through both these chapters, but I want to just give you a quick overview so we know what's been happening. First thing I want you to see is that in Genesis chapter 2, we basically have a representation of creation. We get a second account of the, uh, of the creation, in particular focused on the arrival of the man and woman. So we start off with a workman. And so uh, we see that God formed the man. Have a look with me at verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Dirt plus the breath of God in God's good Good providence equals a living being. So there's a workman. He's also given work to do. And uh, we see the work that he's given to do in verse 15. The Lord God took, him, uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, if you were listening last week, we heard that they were to fill the earth and subdue it. And that can sound a little bit, um, you know, uh, dominate the earth and, and pull everything out and make it a, a mess. But here we see the task is to work the earth and care for it. And I think uh, if ever we're to ground our desire to care for our environment, um, it's found right here in the direct command of God to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. So we have a workman, we have work, and then we have a warning. Have a look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. I want you to see both the freedom and the command here. They're ab he's absolutely free to eat from any of the others, but there's one tree he should not eat from or he'll die. God then assembles all of the, uh, the wild things together and Adam gets the task of naming them. And that's a real, uh, that, that's kind of his ruler, he's, he's the ruler here, and so he gets to name all the animals, which he does. And then we find, quite surprisingly, that amongst all the animals, uh, the end of verse 20 there, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And as I said this morning, um, kelpies are great. Kittens might be lovely. 
goldfish might be your thing, but they aren't going to be a suitable helper for the task of looking after the creation that God's uh, got for Adam. And so what happens is God does something extraordinary, causes him to go into a deep sleep, takes a rib from his side, and then creates a woman. And, uh, you know, uh, it's not very kosher anymore to say this, but I do remember reading uh, uh, Bill, Bill Cosby said, uh, whoa, man, uh, was Adam's first words, and so we get woman, which is vaguely amusing. Um, we see that this wonderful gift is good for him and is a, a perfect complement to him, and then we get this wonderful wedding information, even though there's only two of them in the world. Have a look at verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's still in our marriage service uh, today, which is really beautiful. And I want to just focus on that for one second. See what it says next in verse 25? Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, there are some of us who probably should feel shame, uh, and we should cover up at, at appropriate moments. But here they felt no shame because there was no need to. They knew and loved each other perfectly, and there was no sin. And, and so they actually enjoy the kind of relationship that all of us would like to be in, the ultimate expression of what we long for, being known and knowing without any barrier and without any shame. And this is actually something to aspire to uh, and to long for. Now, I've said across the day that one of the interesting bits to note as we go from chapter 2 to chapter 3 is we imagine God creates Eve and then the next thing that happens is everything goes terribly, right? And all I want to observe is I don't think there's any note here that tells us how long the perfect state of Genesis 2.25 lasted. We don't have any indication here that it was about five minutes before the serpent turned up. We just don't know. And so it could have been hundreds of years. It could literally have been thousands of years that they enjoyed a perfect relationship with each other, with the creation and with their creator. But because the chapters are back to back, we just think we go from there's a woman and then everything falls over. And all I want to suggest to you is just a thought bubble. Perhaps, perhaps it could have been for thousands of years could have been for a day. But the text doesn't tell us, and I want to build some space to say, because it hasn't told us that, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we're told everything is very good. Perhaps they enjoyed it for a while. Perhaps they enjoyed it for a while, and that would be great. Oh, I should say at this point that I'm happy to take questions at the end of tonight, so you're sitting there going, I'm not sure I believe that. Come back at me and ask me in question time. That, that would be fantastic. Well, however long it lasted, it doesn't last forever. And so if we go to chapter 3, verse 1, we see, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. That's really remarkable. We go from perfection to a talking serpent. And we want to know what's going on. We want to know what's going on. Who is this serpent? In order to find out, we need to go to other parts of the Bible. And so in John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus gives us a little bit of information that can be helpful. He's speaking to the Pharisees. Now, anyone who thinks that Jesus is just meek and mild should pay attention here. Uh, but, but Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Who is the devil? The devil is a misleading murderer. And we're going to see why he's a murderer a little bit later. 
as a crafty creature. He's a misleading murderer. And then we go to Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And here's what we find in Revelation chapter 12. And this is where we really find out who that serpent is um, in Genesis 1. It's speaking of, uh, uh, of the end times. And it says, The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. See, who's the serpent? The serpent is the devil or Satan. And if you don't know what Satan means, Satan means accuser. He's the one that makes us feel guilty, who prods us with our sin. Sin and uh, and, uh, deception are his stock in trade. So he's a crafty creature, a misleading murderer, and he's the ancient accuser. But he simply turns up. And for many of us, and I'm sure I'm going to get this question at the end, so let me say hi um, right now. We want to go, yeah, 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 but where did the serpent come from? Don't we? I do. I want to know. I'm going to give you all the information that your God has decided to tell you about this. You ready? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Satisfied? No? Okay. The, the really interesting part, though, is we, we're champing at the bit, right? We really want to know, and God just gives us those words. It, it just is part of the story, and he tells us that here the serpent is. Now, you might t- like to ask some more questions, and we can dive into that afterwards, but that's the information that we have. What I want to do now is to kind of do a, um anatomy lesson on the first sin, And I want you to see how it happens, because I think sin still happens this way today. You and I will be familiar with part of this. So the serpent turns up, and it seems like it's no big deal for Eve to find a talking serpent. I would find that troubling. I would find that very troubling, and I'd be quite concerned. But Eve just takes it in her stride, it appears. And so the talking serpent says... Did God really say? I don't know. I can't kind of get a weirdly enough voice for it, but it's got to be something like that, doesn't it? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's an absolutely fascinating opening. The opening is a real challenge to Eve. But I want you to use your brains. It's Sunday night, I know. Okay. But here's the question. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What's the answer? Okay, good. Good work, team. Okay, the answer is no. So when we say, did God really say, you say, okay, good. Yeah, well, a little bit of conviction would be helpful, but, but okay. So the answer is no. And, and if Eve had simply said no, did God really say you can eat from No. Well, then that's fine. Guess what? We keep living in the garden with our Heavenly Father for all eternity. She could have just said no, but she can't help herself. Okay, so the answer is no, but she needs to justify it. And what happens is the sin of, uh, uh, of doubting God makes us forget the all. Have a look back with me at uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And the devil's opening line is, did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? So what's he done? Well, God gave them everything, and now Satan has made them focus on one thing. 
the one thing they can't have. And so sin makes us forget all of the abundant provision of God, and Satan holds out and says, hey, forget all of that. Do you know you can't have this one thing? You can't have this one thing. And so sin makes us forget the all that God has given us. And it also sows doubt. Hey, why did God do that? Why did God do that? Why why didn't he give us all the trees in the garden? Perhaps he's not good. The other thing that sin does is it speaks with Satan. What it does is engages in dialogue with him. What what Eve could have done was just gone, no, silly talking snake in the garden. I'm all done with you now. The answer is no. And she could have just moved on. But she dives into dialogue with the devil. And it's dangerous. That was too many Ds, wasn't it? Okay. She dives into dialogue with the devil. She wants to talk with Satan about sinning. It's not a good option for us, guys. We need to talk to God about not, not with the devil about possibly. So what happens next is the devil doubles down his attack. The first line was to say, did God really say? And and you and I will know something about this. We'll think, well, is it really a commandment of God? So, So we start to question whether God's word is right. But then Satan goes so hard in the next verses. He actually tells her, you will not certainly die. You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the first thing he says is, God's a liar. God is a liar. He's holding out on you. You won't die. You will not certainly die. Now, how does he get this information? Adam and Eve have never had this thought before, that the heavenly father who loves them, who put them in the garden, is telling them anything other than the truth. But now this serpent is telling them God is a liar. You won't die. Or depending on where the emphasis is, he could also be saying, you won't certainly die. I'm actually not sure what will happen, but it's a possibility. You could roll the dice 50-50, maybe you live, maybe you die, but you get the chance to be like God. Who wants to take the bet? Right? So whatever he's doing, though, is he's making God's word out to be untrustworthy. And what he offers them is a vague future. He says, you can be like God. But as I've said across the day, it's a strange thing to offer them. See, why do you want to be like God if you have a perfect relationship with your spouse if you have a perfect relationship with your creator, if you have fulfilling work, if you have all the food that you can, why do you need anything else? Do you see this? And so he says, you could be like God. And they go, huh, I didn't know I wanted to be like God, but now I do. And so I want what I can't have. It's a vague future, but it trumps the solid blessings that are in front of us. Now, guys, this is how sin works. It's a possible sweet taste in the future when you trade away the good things of God you already have. And what happens? The woman's been listening. And when the woman, verse 6, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So what happened? Eve's looking and she goes, actually, I've never really looked at this tree before. It's actually pretty, that looks good. It looks yummy. It looks great. And, and then she thinks about it and she says, actually, it's not only good, it's pretty. It, 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 it's great. It's shiny and beautiful. How about that? And then she thinks it's desirable for wisdom. I want that thing, that thing that could make me like God. And I want you to see sin appeals to our hunger. It appeals to our lust and it appeals to our pride. We end up making decisions with our stomach 
our loins or our head. I want it, I need it, it's pretty, it'll make me better. Hunger, lust, and pride. And if those things are guiding your decisions, invariably, guess what? It'll lead you to sin. It'll lead you to sin. Here's some questions that being on the edge of sin might raise for us. We might ask, is God holding back our happiness? So God said something to us, and we're going, yeah, but he can't really mean that. I mean, I, I want it, and God's told me I can't have it. Is God holding back my happiness? Are there still things in your life to be thankful for? Because if you're giving thanks, you're still looking at the all that God's given you. When there's nothing left to give thanks for, and you're obsessing over the thing that you can't have, right? That leads us to a dangerous place. So I want to ask you, are you giving thanks for the good things that God's given you? Do you ponder temptation? Do you turn it over and think, it looks good, it looks, it looks pretty, it looks like the sort of thing that I could... Do you ponder temptation? That'll be extremely unhelpful for you. A question that I've been working on for a while is, how do you know if you're worshipping the true God? How do you know if you're worshipping the true God? And I reckon this is my new litmus test. The new litmus test is, has your God ever told you no? You see, because if it's a God that I've invented, how many gods that I invent will cramp my desires? How many gods that I invent will ever restrict my unbridled desire to do whatever I want, to be whatever? No, no God I invent will ever stop me doing things that I want to do. So what I want to ask you is, are you worshipping a God who is saying no to some of your desires? If you are, it's at least possible that he might be the true and living God and not just one who's a figment of your imagination. And I want to ask you, are you doubting his word? Well, I think one of the things that happens is we don't decide immediately that we're going to sin. What we decide is, gee, who can really believe this old dusty scripture? It's been around for three and a half thousand years. What would God know about modern life? He wouldn't know the challenges and temptations I've got. This word isn't really trustworthy. But it's actually not an examination of the scriptures. It's a preparation for disobedience. And so when we find ourselves doubting the word of God, inevitably it's because we have sin in mind. We're plotting and scheming to do the wrong thing. Well, let's have a look at how this first sin actually happened. And I want to observe, first of all, for Eve... The actual problem is to do with what she's heard. Have a look with me at um, chapter 3, verse 3. The devil says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? And she says, we may eat from the trees of the garden, but God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, if you look across at verse 17 in chapter 2, you will see it didn't say or touch it doesn't say that. And so here's what I think happened. I reckon Adam said, I used this this morning, here's our magnificent tree in the middle of the garden, right? Beautiful, right? I think Adam said, hey, Eve, God told me that we can't eat from the tree of the, the, the knowledge of good and evil in the middle. Don't eat from that tree. In fact, Eve, I'm looking after you. Don't even touch it. That's what God said. God said, don't even touch it, right? Now, God hadn't said that, and I think Adam was trying to protect her, but I think it actually leads to sin, Adam adds to the word of God. And so what happens is, is there an ungodly pause? I'm totally speculating here, okay? But bear with me. 
In order to eat a fruit, what do you have to do first? Well, you have to reach up and grab it, don't you? Unless you're doing bobbing for apples kind of thing. Like that, okay? Which I assume nobody does. And so here it is. Because um, Adam had said to her, God said you may not touch it or you will die, I think what happens is Eve touches it and then waits. I haven't died. It's going to be okay. Do you see? You must not touch it or you will die. Now, that's not the word of God, but I think she draws confidence from the fact that she's touched the fruit and then she eats it. And so I think, is there an ungodly pause? Does she see to check if I'm going to die? And then there's a rebellious bite. Then she eats the thing. Adam had added to the word of God and Eve doubts the word of God and thus sins. And then I think Adam thinks about the word of God and, and it said, you will not certainly die. God had said, if you eat of it, you will certainly die. And so now he's watching, and what he's seen is that he is, he's watched Eve, because have a look what it says here, uh, verse 6. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Way to go, Adam. Are you telling me, Adam, you're standing right next to your wife while he, she's talking to a serpent, and he's leading her to eat from the tree that you know you shouldn't eat from? Great work, bucko. You know, that's not, that's not really outstanding. So Adam's right there. And, and look, he thinks Eve hasn't died, right? So Eve touched, didn't die. Eve ate, she didn't die. And so he's conducted his little experiment, right? Cool, Eve touched, okay. Eve ate, okay. And so he says, I'm now going to have my rebellious bite. Adam has done his analysis and he fails to care for his wife. He fails to resist the temptation himself and he falls. So what can we learn about sin from this little set of events? We can learn that God's consequences aren't instant. God's consequences aren't instant. In other words, God says you will die if you eat from the tree. And guess what? That's going to happen. But it doesn't happen the very instant. Some things like maybe touching uh, the electrical wires on a train, that might be an instant thing, right? You, you would die instantly. But some of the choices that we make take time, right? The habitual smoker is doing something that will reap a harvest eventually, okay? But it won't happen instantly. And so you say, smoking kills. And you go, I've been smoking for 20 years and I'm doing fine. Well, no, no, it's killing you. It just hasn't happened yet. So here's the interesting thing. Sin will always kill us. It just won't do it instantly. And so the, the problem we have is the gap makes us bold. The gap between the sin and the consequence makes us bold. And so we go, huh, I didn't die. I could do more of that. We could get away with this. God hasn't seen. And so the gap makes us bold. And then peer pressure leads us to just do what the other people have done. Eve did it. She's passing me the fruit. She hasn't died. It's going to be okay. It'll work out okay. But I want you to see that the satisfaction from all of this sin lasts only seconds. There's a wonderful quote I found in my, um, my research this week, and it said this, they, ate, they eat and expect marvellous results. They wait, and there grows on them a sense of shame. See, the devil is a terrible salesman. Well, actually, he's a really good salesman. He'll get you to sign up. He'll get you to, to do the thing. But he also has a no exchanges and no refunds policy, 
right? So he says, I'm going to make you like God. You can be like God. And then what we find, what did the devil really sell us? Well, Satan has sold us something entirely different. You thought you could be like God. But what we find instead, Satan has sold us shame. We are no longer innocent. He has sold us fear. God now seems dangerous. He has sold us hiding. We now need to avoid fellowship with God. And we see this in Adam and Eve. They realize that they were naked and they cover themselves and run away from God. Satan sold us a lie because he is the father of lies. It's the very opposite of being naked and unashamed. So I want us to think about what happens next. I want us to think about what happens next. God calls out, it's so amazing. Um, Have a look at verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The implication here is that they used to have this beautiful fellowship. Beautiful fellowship. They would walk in the cool of the day, that's the evening, with God totally unafraid, turning over the events of the day, face-to-face fellowship. And now, for the first time, God calls out, where are you? Where are you? And Adam says, I'm hiding because I'm naked. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And his response is, dear great God and heavenly Father, You know all things. You see all things. And as the head of the human race, I want to take responsibility for my sinful actions. And I want to stand before you and confess and plead your... Listen to what he says. Have a look what he says. He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It wasn't me. It was her. And by the way, it's actually your fault because you put her here. Are you with me? He's actually blaming God and the woman at the same time. Uh, our, um, our life group on Tuesday night has a guy who's a discipline officer for one of the schools in our area. And he said, I've never had a kid walk into my office and own up to the bad things that they've done. It was never their fault. Well, here we go. Right, sin. Number one, Adam says, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman. And it was you, God, because you put her here. So God says to the woman, what is this you have done? And she says, well, actually... It was the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And implicit in that is, you put this serpent here. It's your fault. Well, what happens? I told you that sin has consequences. And I want to work through, because they're laid out here, the consequences. We see for the serpent, the serpent isn't given opportunity to say why he did it. Do you see that? He's not asked, why did you do it? God just punishes the serpent. Because as an animal... He is different to the creatures who have the image of God. And so God just says, you are cursed. Have a look with me at verse 14. Because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. You're going to crawl and you're going to eat dust and there's going to be conflict. But there's something even more here. I want you to see something incredibly beautiful in this text. And if you've never known this before, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is incredible because of what it says. It says, 
Not only will the offspring of the woman and the snake be at war, but we are told he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Incidentally, if we're in any doubts, when you crush the head of a snake, it's not walking away from that. Okay, you're killing it when you crush the head of a snake. When you bite the heel of a person, depending on what kind of snake you are, you may or may not die. So where in the story in the future will we see a descendant of Eve crush Satan but be injured in the process? Well, if we look at our Bible timeline, we can go forward and we can find it at the cross. It's at the cross we see that the offspring of Eve defeats Satan and dies in the process. What we have in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is a little window into the gospel right there in the third chapter of the Bible. Because if you follow the story through to the end, from little things, big things grow. Well, that's beautiful and great and hopeful, but it looks pretty desperate for Adam and for Eve. Let's see what happens to Eve. I want you to see that she is not cursed. I think I was really surprised about this when I read it recently. Eve isn't cursed. However, however, there are consequences for sin. And so she will be pained in childbearing and it will be painful for her in her marriage relationship. Her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her. And so marriage and family will be marred by the fall. For Adam, there will also be consequences. Again, I want you to see he isn't cursed. He isn't cursed, but the ground is cursed. Have a look at me at verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat the food from it all the days of your life. (laughs) It will provide sweaty supper for him. By, um, By verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And then it says he has a dusty destiny. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Here we see that Adam will die. He will die. Death will come to Adam. Toil and tilling will be made hard for him. And then God says, well, you can't be a sinful man and a sinful woman and live in the garden having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was one other tree that you could eat from, a tree of life a tree of life that will keep you alive forever. Now, you can't keep eating from that anymore. And so I'm going to kick you out. That's an act of grace because you can't live forever in a sinful state. God kicks them out, but he covers them as well. Have a look with me at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. How do you make garments of skin from an animal? What has to happen to the animal? got to die they're not going to give up their skin willingly so here's the thing here's the thing there's no way back to the uh to the tree of life but we see right here in genesis chapter 3 that an animal sacrifice will happen to cover over the sin of humanity isn't this extraordinary there's a little a little indication of what's still ahead of us and we see that there will be no more access to the tree of life Oh, fantastic. I'm preaching Genesis 3 on Mother's Day. How can we connect Mother's Day to Genesis chapter 3? I want to show you two mothers. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Have a look with me. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Well, that's the most Mother's Day verse you can get. 
She's the mummy of everyone. That's pretty good, isn't it? Okay, so Eve is the mother of all. And then if we jump forward to the New Testament, we see that there will be a woman, and uh, this is in chatting with Joseph, it says, she will give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. There's a lady called Mary, who's a mother, and she will be the mother of someone called Jesus, who is the one who will be descended from Eve. How beautiful is that? One is the mother of all, and one is the mother of the one who will be our great hope. Well, Jesus was, um, was wandering down the street one day. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. I just think this is one of those most random crowd call-out comments, isn't it? Hey, your mum's really awesome. Blessed is your mum. That's kind of funky and cool. It's definitely in the uh, Mother's Day kind of category, isn't it? Your mum's awesome. And Jesus' response is really helpful for us. Have a listen to what he says in response. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. See, sin is the reason that Jesus had to come. We heard the word of God and we disobeyed. Here, Jesus is saying, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So what do we need to do in light of Genesis chapter 3? Well, we need to recognize the way that sin has and still does impact everything. Everything is broken because of this first sin. We need to worship, I love this, the serpent-crushing king who helps us stand each day. Jesus is the serpent-crushing king. How wonderful is that? Go Jesus, and we should worship him. And we should live in hope of the new creation to come. I want to finish with this picture. Here's my Bible timeline. It starts off with creation in Genesis chapter 1. We've just done the fall in Genesis chapter 3, but I want you to see the story finishes with new creation. Come with me to Genesis 22 as we finish up the sermon today. Genesis 22, it's basically the last page in your Bible. Genesis chapter 22. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean, Revelation 22. (laughs) It's really helpful that people are paying attention, isn't it? You're going, Genesis 22, they're not telling me anything exciting. Come with me to Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Revelation 22. Remember that they were booted out of the garden. They couldn't come back to the tree. Here's the end. The angel showed me a river of the water of life, as clear as, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Note this, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Guys, we are looking forward to a finish where we go back to the garden, forgiven, free, and able to eat again from the tree of life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the God who takes us back to the garden, not because we're good, but through the sacrifice of your son, the seed of Eve, who crushes the head of Satan. Father, in very practical ways, help us this week not to turn away from your blessings, but to see your goodness and trust your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Genesis chapter 3. We know all about sin now. 
No, we don't. We've only started to get into it, but there we go. Uh, have someone, uh, someone got any questions for me uh, to follow up uh, from that message tonight? Stu, uh, Tim, can I get you to run that uh, mic back down to uh, Stu? Is that all right? Thanks, mate. Uh, this is a question raised in our life group on Wednesday. Okay. Uh, were the first people vegetarians up until the time of Noah? I love this question, and I've been forced to engage with it, as indeed the people I assume in your life group have, because we've been reading the Bible. Who would have thought? I think, Kathy, you had the, the same comment to me. And I had two other Karen Connect cards last week, so I love that the Karen Connect cards are working. Hey, aren't we supposed to be vegetarians? Was that you as well, Owen? Did you ask me that question as well, Owen? Yep, vegetarians, great. Okay, here's the answer. It would appear so. I'm really, I'm really surprised by this. If you want to be a vegetarian and you're looking for justification from the scriptures, go to the first chapters of Genesis. I think it's there. I give you every green plant for food. Yep. And then it's restated here again, from the soil of the ground you will eat. And it's not until Genesis chapter 9, which Michael is going to really helpfully um, preach for us next week, uh, where we actually find out that uh, they are given... Um, all the food of the animals to eat as well. Can someone find it with Verse me? Verse 2. Verse 2, is it, Stu? Do you want to read it? For oh, I'll read it. Um, the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Verse 3, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. Yeah, so I think the short answer, Stu, is Yes. And that's remarkable, and it's unexpected, but it appears that they are vegetarians up until this point. I wonder if that's part of the fact that death comes with sin. And so just after we have the biggest sin, which is uh, in, um, in uh, Genesis 6 to 9, which Michael's going to tell us about next week, that we get this, all right, death's everywhere. You might as well eat animals. I do also note, Stu, I had a chuckle through the week. I sent some people an email where I said, it appears that God likes the smell of burning meat too. It says it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So come to the lamb night and um, smell that aroma that's pleasing to the Lord. It's a great question, Stu. I really like it. Thanks. Yep. Someone else? Lauren. Um, our ladies on Friday were asking, where is the Garden of Eden um, now? Okay, I love this question. I think it's fantastic because who doesn't want to find the garden? If you find the garden, what are you going to find? Flaming sword, a cherubim, a tree of eternal life, and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, guys, I love, I've been reading my Bible since I was this big. Read it every single day, okay? And this is one of the questions that I've, I've kind of been going, where's the garden? Where's the garden? Can I go to the garden? The garden looks really cool. I think the garden sounds amazing. I want to see a cherubim. I want to see a flashing sword. That sounds really... Now, here's the thing. After Genesis 3, Michael, you've got a great job next week. You're going to t- talk us about, there is a global flood. Okay? So a flood that wipes out all of humanity and animals that aren't on the ark. Okay? It is my assumption that in that incredibly destructive flood, we lose the garden. Because it says that the water covers the whole surface of the earth. Okay? And so my assumption is that the garden, that initial cradle of perfection and right relationship is swept away in this overwhelming deluge that comes in the later chapters of Genesis there, um, 6 to 9. Does, does that make sense? So you won't be able to find it physically because it was swept away in the flood. That's speculation rather than a specific word from the Bible. But never anywhere else are we told, if only we can get back to the garden, 
there isn't a physical location that's mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So my assumption is it was a real place and it was destroyed in the flood. Assumption, inference, not sure. Does that sound right? Thank you. It's a good question, though. I like it. Someone else? Joy. Um, so in 2.16, it was just told, they were just told they weren't allowed to eat from the one tree. And yes. then, so they had access to the tree of life. You, yes. Some, this, that is the inference. Shooting. Yes. Yeah. So then in 3.22, they're told, oh, they mustn't touch the tree of life. So how come any eating of the tree of the life before wouldn't have made them live forever, but now it, like... Oh, yes, no. I, I, there's two things going on, Joy. Let's read it really carefully. It's a really good question. Um, verse 22, and the Lord God said, the, ne- the man has now become like one of us, interesting plural, now become one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. I think what he's being told is not that he'd never previously eaten from the tree of life, but having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's not allowed to now live forever in a state of rebellion. So it's not that he wasn't eating from the tree of life before, but having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he can't now also go back and keep eating from the tree of life. Are you, are you with me? So, so you can't, you can't eat yeah. also, also from the tree of life and live forever. So I don't want you to live forever in a state of rebellion. Is what? Oh, I see. Oh, no, I'm, I'm making a different point. Yes, sorry, that's really helpful. So I don't think it's a one-off deal. And so what it says, in, and, and this is really helpful, isn't it? That passage from Revelation 22 says it's bearing 12 crops a year. Is that what it says, I think? Um, it's continually eating from the tree of life that enables us to live forever. Not that I've had a little slither from the tree of life and now I'm going to live forever. I think it's ongoing eating from the tree of life enables us to live forever. And so having eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you don't get to go back to this one. And because you can't go back, now you'll die. So it's continual eating rather than it's one-off eating. And I'm suggesting to you from Revelation 22 that they were continually eating from the tree of life because they could eat from any tree in the garden with the exception of one tree. So they were regularly eating from the tree of life, and that's why they were living for as long as they did. Incidentally, speculation is also the reason that I reckon there are such long lifespans immediately after this. Because I think they've kind of got the, um, the radioactive isotope of, of eternal life still in them. And so there are, there are really weirdly long lifespans after this until the flood, and then God says, that's enough. I've done enough with human beings. You don't get to have any more of that. You're just going to live normal amounts of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a good question. Come back. You got another one? No, no. Yeah, so just in our life group, we're talking about how there was no evil before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes. And so for that to even be a thing, for the, for the serpent to even tempt them, I guess the temptation was to be like God, right? Because knowing about evil wasn't a thing, Really good. So how can I... What's, what's attractive about the, the knowledge of good and evil when there is no evil? I know about God already. I mean, I know about uh, good already. So why would I be interested in knowing about evil? Really good question. But yeah, I think, I think he just packages it up and says, God's holding on, out on you. He's clearly bigger than you. You can be like him. That's the sales pitch. And it just happens to come with the knowledge of good and evil. Make sense? It's good. Yeah, yeah. Good question. Here another one. Yeah. 
Hey, front. Hi. Hi, I'm Liz. Um, Liz. How do they know what death is? Oh, this is such a good question. Um, really good. Can I just say tonight we are asking great questions. They, they, they do come up in the text. So, in other words, the reason you're asking the question is why, Liz. Tell me why. How would they know what, what death is? Why does that matter? Because God says. Because they're supposed to be innocent. So yep. they didn't know what death was before they ate from the tree, right? Yeah. And so how could it be a so real how, threat? Yeah. How do they know that that's... A bad thing. A bad thing when they... Yeah. Yep. So there's two... I think this is really fascinating, and there are big things that hang off whatever the answer to this is, right? I think there's a possible answer, which is there is literally no death in all of creation until the fall. Okay? And so part of the reason that they're vegetarians... Total speculation here. Part of the reason they're vegetarians, okay, is because they're not eating animals, which means no animals are dying either. And no animals are eating other animals because they're also given... Did you see this, Stu? They're also... The animals are given green things to eat. They're not actually told to eat each other, right? So I'm wondering, it's possible that the whole category of death is a total null. They don't know what it is. It's possible. Alternatively... Death is just naturally happening because humans and uh, uh, living things decay. Everything probably isn't eating from the tree of life. So they probably see death around them all the time. That's the alternative, right? So do lizards live forever? Apparently not. Insects don't live forever. You're you're eventually going to come across a dead something somewhere because that's the way life works. So the alternate speculation is they knew exactly what death was because they'd seen it in animals. And so the fear was, don't be like the animals who don't have the breath of life in them anymore. Obey me. Now, I think that's reasonable. uh, But there is the other one which basically says, hey, we're living in a green world that has no death at all. In which case, I think it's just an obedience call. God just says, don't do this or a bad thing will happen. It's called death. You don't know anything about it yet, but don't do it. It's bad. Are you with me? So in that that case, they don't know what death is, but they're just asked to be obedient. In the other case, they know what death is, and it's a real threat, and they go, I don't want to be like that. You should be obedient. But either way, what we're left with is, you should just trust my word. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Has that been helpful? Okay, great. Good. Uh, Any others? Yes, Caro. Oh, okay, great. Last one. No, but it's fun now. You put up your hand. I don't want to be difficult, but I guess we've just seen the creation of the world and everything was good and it was perfect. Very good. And then we have Adam and Eva created and they have access to the tree of life, but not to the other tree. Um, So Satan is there tempting them. Uh, Is the temptation not a sin? Like, is there a sin before Adam and Eve choose to eat the fruit? As in, is the temptation a, a sin? sin? Yeah. Is there already sin there happening in <clears throat> Satan tempting them, or is it just a temptation so it's not a sin? You know yeah, it's mean? really good. Um, uh, th- th- I think there's actually an even bigger question behind, and I'm just trying to work out whether I'm going to answer that one as well. But the, the, the first answer is um, temptation can't be sin. How do I know this? Thank you, Kathy. Jesus is taken into the wilderness at the start of his life, and he is tempted in the wilderness by who? Okay, we know at the end, Jesus is totally without sin, don't we? Please tell me you know that. Okay, so it can't be that the temptation is sin. However, it's a temptation to sin. 
Jesus rises to the challenge and never doubts the word of his father. So he always only chooses what's right with God. So when Satan puts the temptation in front of them, is that sin? I would say no. But are you asking me, because there's another question, which is, is Satan sinning by tempting them? Mm. Is that your question? Because he leads them to sin. Yeah. Great question. Uh, And I simply don't know the answer to that. I I think he is doing the wrong thing by asking them to doubt the word of God. And it asks a prior question, which is, how does Satan know to ask a question that will lead other people to doubt the goodness of God? Are you with me? Right. And guess what I say in answer to that? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in the garden, the serpent was more crafty than... So we want to know. And and so there is a whole thing. And, And Jeff and I were talking about it just before. I'm pretty sure it's the Catholics that have a whole thing about the angels falling before the fall of man. Have you heard of this? The problem is you can't find a chapter and verse for that in the Bible that's in front of you. Okay, That's not in our Bibles. And so it's logical to infer that there must have been a spiritual fall that preceded the fall of humanity because otherwise, how could you know to doubt? You with me? That, that, That makes sense. But all I'm telling you is it's not in our Bible to say, yes, that happened. And so all I'm going to do is say, it appears logical that there was a prior sin. It appears logical that Satan sinned before the sin of Adam and Eve, but we are told nothing about it. Does that make sense? Great question, though. And it is the question in the text, I think. We just go, come on, tell us, God. And God says, not interested. But I do want to tell you that Satan will be defeated. I do want to tell you that you will be held responsible if you sin. And that's the message of the text for us. Satan loses and we will be responsible if we sin. Well, that's a good note to land on, isn't it? A moment of brief clarity. Um, Come and chat to me uh, over supper. I'm sure there'll be more questions. That's really helpful. And I'm uh, thankful for the Q&A. Tim, you looked like you were preparing your Bible for me, so just come and ask me afterwards. Good one. Um, Can I invite you to take out your Caring Connect cards? If you've got a sneaky question that didn't come up 